In April 2009, Somali pirates boarded the Maersk, Alabama and held its crew hostage. It was the first time pirates had successfully seized a U.S. ship since the early 19th century. Four years later, Hollywood adapted the story into the film Captain Phillips, starring a heroic Tom Hanks and a swashbuckling team of U.S. Navy SEALs. It produced this famous line. Look at me, sure. Look at me, sure. I'm the captain now. And then the film wrapped up nicely and won all sorts of awards, and it was a happy ending all around. The reality wasn't that simple. Piracy had been growing off the coast of Somalia for years. Under a UN mandate, Combined Task Force 151, or CTF 151, was created in 2009 to combat the issue. Piracy off the coast of Somalia wasn't just a local problem. It jeopardized trade routes and disrupted global shipping. And piracy was a growing global problem, costing about $10 billion per year in 2010. Counter-piracy efforts got broad international support and 33 countries signed on to CTF-151. China did not, even though most of China's exports to Europe passed by Somalia. A challenge anywhere else on the globe to put together that diverse grouping of nations, like-minded nations that are here to support peace and stability in the region, the free flow of commerce, and ultimately maritime security. That was a handoff ceremony from CTF-151 transferring leadership from Bahrain to Japan. Although China did not sign on to CTF-151, the Chinese Navy still conducts anti-piracy operations in the region. The Navy acts parallel to international efforts, but it isn't a partner in them. The United States helps stand up CTF-151, but it doesn't lead it. While China doesn't participate, it doesn't seek to undermine it either. CTF-151 and China's largely independent anti-piracy measures are just one example of how China interacts with multinational efforts within a U.S.-led world order. How else is China cooperating or competing with the United States in the Middle East? I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and this is the China in the Middle East podcast series. In this episode, we'll explore how China views the Middle East versus how the United States views the region. We'll also look at areas of cooperation and competition between the U.S. and China in the Middle East. Piracy is just one of many shared concerns between the United States and China, says Don Murphy of the U.S. Army Air College. The views that Murphy expresses in this podcast are her own and don't represent the views of the U.S. government. Here's Murphy. The U.S. and China have many shared interests in the Middle East, particularly in stability. They both want to see the Arab-Israeli conflict resolved. They, they both want peace in Syria they both want decreased tensions between states in the Middle East, for example, between Saudi and Iran. And so they share these interests, but they don't necessarily have bilateral cooperation. Robert Manning is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and he formerly served in the office of the Director of National Intelligence. He agrees. There is some 
complementarity. I think the Chinese also, obviously, everybody wants to free flow of oil, both exporters and importers, and the Chinese are very much focused on that. At the same time, they know that they benefit to the degree the U.S. gets sucked into more involvement in the Middle East. It distracts them from the Asia-Pacific. So I think that the Chinese are enjoying that in both senses. China, it seems, has complicated ideas about the U.S. role in the Middle East. It wants the United States to be active there, but it also hopes the United States is distracted there. China seems to want the United States to be trapped somewhere between success and failure in the Middle East. Both benefit China. Georgetown's Evan Medeiros rejoins us from episode one. In fact, from one perspective, the Middle East is a region where American and Chinese interests actually align quite well uh, in terms of their interest in stability and uninhibited access to oil and gas markets. I mean, the question is, is whether or not the United States and China are able to develop a political modus vivendi in their relationship that would actually allow for some degree of uh, policy coordination toward the Middle East, given these converging interests. But Medeiros doesn't think there'll be much policy coordination between the United States and China in the Middle East, despite shared interests. I think we're far from that world for other reasons that have to do with the complexity and intensifying competition of the U.S.-China relationship. But I actually see more convergence in U.S. and Chinese interests in the Middle East than I do divergence. As a result, the United States and China occasionally cooperate or contribute to the same efforts in the region. China often touts its participation in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, also known as the Iran nuclear deal. Chinese officials often seek to highlight that in this instance, the United States and China cooperated to minimize the risk of Iran. China has also adhered to sanctions placed on Iran, both those imposed by the UN before the JCPOA and those imposed by the United States starting in 2018. However, Manning reminds us that these forms of cooperation and shared concerns aren't direct policy coordination. I don't know that there's much cooperation. It's more kind of pursuing parallel approaches. I mean, they want stability in, in Saudi Arabia and Iran. They want oil flows. They want gas flows. CTF-151 is an example of the Chinese approach. Although China and the United States both were committed to anti-piracy, China wasn't willing to join an integrated international effort to pursue anti-piracy. A skeptic might say that China wanted credit for its efforts, but it wasn't fully willing to pay the dues. Our experts agree that competition between the United States and China has largely limited cooperation between the two to security and peacekeeping endeavors, and even that is often indirectly through multilateral organizations. Murphy says that competition goes beyond simple trade or economic rivalries. I see the U.S. and China competing the most in trying to gain influence more broadly in the region. So, for example, China's portraying itself as a balanced actor and as a defender of sovereignty and an advocate for developing country causes. And in particular, it wants to develop influence economically, politically, you know, through foreign aid. And it's using a number of tools to accomplish those purposes. For example, cooperation forums. It has a special envoy for the Middle East peace process, a special envoy for Syria. Manning agrees. 
it's a competition between two very different models and visions for what the world should look like. So the competition that exists is more differing social and economic systems, authoritarian state capitalism versus free markets. Uh, and in the Middle East, uh, the Chinese are more comfortable because you mainly have, with the exception of Israel, authoritarian regimes who they know how to do business with, they're comfortable with, and the U.S. struggles with. But the Sino-American competition goes beyond whether countries embrace theoretical commitments to open markets and rule of law. China also wants Arab support on issues that are contentious between the U.S. and China, Murphy says. Increasingly, China is attempting to gain support from Middle Eastern countries on issues that really are competitive between the U.S. and China. So, for example, increasingly, they want support from Arab states for their stance on the South China Sea and territorial disputes within Asia. And they're increasingly including verbiage associated with that issue in their strategic partnerships, in their cooperation forums. So they're, they're linking it in that way. Xinjiang, where upwards of a million Muslim Uyghurs have been put in re-education camps and are subject to extensive surveillance, is another example. The governments of Muslim-majority countries have been notably quiet about what many see as Chinese suppression of a Muslim minority. Clerics have been quiet, too, and many see this silence as part of an effort to appease an economically ascendant China. In early January 2020, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo commended the Bahraini Council of Representatives for expressing concern about the Uyghurs. It did not inspire other Arab governments to follow suit. In fact, on a number of issues, the United States isn't able to lead Middle Eastern states the way it once did. I think the U.S. is attempting to encourage states in the region to lean towards the U.S. when they're considering their relations for China. So, so one specific example of that would be concerns regarding 5G. There is a significant U.S. government concern regarding countries more broadly adopting 5G technology, and a number of those are in the Middle East. And so the U.S. very much is, is involved in encouraging countries to not pursue Huawei or a Chinese-based 5G approach. That could be seen as attempting to undermine China's efforts in the region to expand its markets for its goods and services. Chinese technology has the ability to entrench Middle Eastern dictators and block the United States from the region. Deborah Lair is executive director at the Paulson Institute. She's dedicated her career to focusing on Chinese markets, and she founded a strategic consulting firm focused on China and the Middle East. Lair explains how 5G is just one way in which an economic iron curtain could force countries to choose between the United States and China. So the economic iron curtain is where we start to make divisions between the United States and China based on technology and other flows. He talks about financial services and trade, investment, and people. He, in this case, is Hank Paulson, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary and a proponent of the idea. But in the context of the Middle East, where Huawei, for example, has put in place 4G, it's not operable with any other telecom equipment. And so to upgrade to 5G, you have to use Huawei technology. If Huawei is banned here, and we're not going to let countries or companies who are using 
Huawei's 5G come onto the U.S. networks, we could be looking at systems that are totally separate. And when you play that into the extreme, it starts to become where, say, our troops in the region will be using the 5G standards of the United States and the troops in the region who are Middle Eastern would be using Chinese Huawei 5G standards, and they won't be compatible and able to talk to each other. The fallout, of course, goes beyond choosing one cell phone company over another. This is a security issue. And it's so much broader than just your ability to use your phone because 5G is going to be a disruptor in ways that 4G wasn't. 4G was really was business to consumer, so it meant that you could download your movie faster or you could you know, calls were more reliable. This is going to be across every industry. So it's going to be your car talking on the internet and getting all your data, your refrigerator, your toaster, your coffee machine, artificial intelligence. So many things will be impacted. The U.S. government fears that Chinese telecommunications technology will give the Chinese government a backdoor into communications all over the world. And that backdoor will become more valuable to China as the amount of information passing through networks explodes. More broadly, China may build in ways for authoritarian governments to track their citizens' every activity. It will be a boost for dictatorships and government power and a defeat for democracy and the power of citizens. Observers say that Chinese technology often offers 80% of the capability of Western competitors at 60% of the cost. If that's true, will U.S. allies and partners continue to pay a premium for Western equipment? And what if Chinese equipment offers enhanced surveillance capabilities? Would the adoption of Chinese technology make the Middle East a different place from if it adopted U.S. technology? And if so, how would that affect U.S. interests? For decades, the United States has been the principal external security guarantor in the Middle East. It did so in large measure to protect its energy imports. But as the United States becomes self-sufficient in oil, it's trying to disentangle itself from its security commitments to the region as well, in theory, at least. Nowhere was this policy shift more apparent than in the Obama administration's attempt to pivot to Asia. And even though China has overtaken the United States as the primary economic partner for many countries in the Middle East, China has kept its military presence limited. Here's Manning's theory on why. I think that they see the Middle East as kind of a snake pit they don't want to get sucked into. And that's probably the one lesson from watching the United States all these years. Instead, China is relying on a strategy of forging close ties to governments, proclaiming non-interference in domestic affairs, and promising economic development to protect its Middle Eastern interests. China's main goal, security, may be similar to the U.S. goal, but the approach is very different, says Murphy. In considering the, the ways in which the Chinese government views the Middle East in a fundamentally different way than the U.S., I think the most important thing to consider is that ultimately China wants stability in the Middle East, but sees the way to stability through non-intervention and non-interference, as well as working with all parties in the regions to resolve issues. As China increases its presence in the Middle East, it's offering an alternative to how the U.S. and other Western nations have traditionally thought about security. In doing so, it's also challenging the world order. China in the Middle East, in many ways, is challenging the U.S.-led 
Western liberal order. And the way in which they do this in one way is through advocating for the five principles of peaceful coexistence, which most importantly emphasizes sovereignty, non-intervention, non-interference in the domestic politics of states in the region. They also advocate for a very strong role of the Chinese state in economic activity occurring abroad in the Middle East, as well as advocating for developing country causes. The five principles of peaceful coexistence are mutual respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, mutual non-aggression, non-interference in each other's internal affairs, equality and mutual benefit, and peaceful coexistence. China has established economic partnerships, free trade agreements, and special economic zones as part of their five principles. They also present an alternative to the U.S. model. That's really one of the things that differentiates the U.S. and China. China is focusing on the five principles of peaceful coexistence, and the U.S. does have more of a values-based approach. As China and the United States jostle for influence in the Middle East, they're both presenting their approaches for the region to choose from. Nadej Roland is a senior fellow for political and security affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research. She focuses on China's rise and the Belt and Road Initiative, and she thinks that as much as this is about commercial and strategic interests, it's really about influence. This is about winning the hearts and minds of the non-Western world. So here, it's really political, and it's trying to undermine the principles of liberal democracy and this idea that is the basis of the liberal international order, that if you have free individuals and free societies, it will bring prosperity and it would bring peace and stability. The Chinese way of doing things is very different from that. It stems more from the state, and it's a, a, an authoritarian version of stability. Don Murphy thinks that the competition between the United States and China, playing out in regions like the Middle East, could ultimately end up breaking down the liberal world order. And China is ready with a replacement. As the U.S decreases its support for that order, or as the U.S. characterizes China as a competitor in that order, I do think that there's a danger that that order itself may start to break down. And if that occurs, China has built an alternate order based on the five principles of peaceful coexistence, a strong role for the Chinese state in economic activity, and advocacy for developing country causes that could take its place. China's hearts and minds campaign, as Roland characterizes it, is positioning China for other countries to follow China as a leader. Typically, China, or rather the the Chinese leadership, is trying to tell the world that uh, they're not interested in waging wars. The narrative is that the People's Republic of China is a peaceful nation, and it's going to rise peacefully. So... The United States and China view the Middle East differently. Although China still views the region as a secondary or tertiary interest, it's clearly very important to China's efforts to grow its global role and provide an alternative to a liberal world order. The United States, on the other hand, is changing its traditional view of the region. It no longer wants to act as the principal security provider 
and it's struggling to disengage from what the U.S. public views as a series of endless wars in the Middle East. The United States and China often have complementary goals in the Middle East, but they rarely cooperate, and they often have different visions of how to achieve those goals. Next time in the podcast, we look at prospects for China in the Middle East. We talk to Deborah Lair and Adej Roland about political warfare and the potential for Chinese private businesses to succeed in the Middle East. I'm your host, John Alterman, and this is the China in the Middle East miniseries. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.